from Flourish DX, this is the Psych Health and Safety Podcast. With workplace mental health becoming a safety prerogative, this is the source of information on psychological injury prevention and health promotion. Hello and welcome to the UK Psych Health and Safety Podcast. My name is Peter Kelly and today we've got a guest, somebody I've known for many years um, and well, not many, many years, but uh, a number of years and I'm really looking forward to this. This is like having your, your mate in your kitchen um, to talk about all things psych health and safety. So I'll let my mate in the kitchen introduce themselves. Oh, hi, I am Dr. Judith Grant and I'm Managing Director of the Wellbeing Exchange and I'm a chartered psychologist and wellbeing strategist. And I really do feel like I'm in Peter's kitchen. Um, we have just spent what is actually seven minutes listening to him brew a very fancy cappuccino from his coffee machine. Thanks for that. Thank you very much. <laughs> we will not mention your pink smeg. It is coffee a fantastic machine. coffee machine too. All coffee machine. I like a nice coffee machine. It's good for my wellbeing. I do it. I think it's the heart of well-being, doesn't it? Actually, coffee <laughs> machines. If, if you get the right coffee, you, you know you just you just feel like you're in you're, you're in the zone. It's the uh, process. Talking about being, in the, yes, it is. It's very therapeutic to, exactly. to hear the bubble, the, the steaming of the milk, and uh, and the coffee grinding down. Exactly. But talking about, yeah, absolutely. But talking about process. Tell me what you've been up to, Judith. Because when I last spoke to you, you were at university. Yes. Oh, so, and, and then somewhere else, and I'll let them. I'll let you tell the audience. So, um, so last spoke to me in terms of earlier this week. You mean I was at? Uh, or yes, yes. So yes, so on Monday. Yeah, on Monday I was at King's College, London, um, on meeting students doing their masters in organisational psychiatry and psychology, um, and every year I tutor a student on that course so I was meeting lots of fantastic students which was which was brilliant but that's just a I guess that's the a volunteering bit of what I have been up to recently um but I set up my own business a year ago so I set up the wellbeing exchange properly kind of kicked it off I suppose in January so it's been well 10 months now time flies um and it's going really well so working with a range of different clients doing all sorts of um, different activities for them. But the Wellbeing Exchange is all about um, consultancy, coaching and connecting is my kind of the three C's. Um, so I've done some coaching with individuals, an awful lot of consultancy now for organisations. And then I've done a few like talks and um, and I really like doing things like this. So obviously coming on your podcast is brilliant because... Obviously, I've listened to it before, so it's an honour to be invited. Thank you, Peter. Oh, you, know, you just know what to say to bring a smile to my face. <laughs> uh, thank you very much. <laughs> Judith, well-being. Where are we? Where are we on well-being in, 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 in the UK? That's a, that's a very big you, question. Yeah, I'm it's sure a, you have. Uh, it is a big question, <laughs> but I'm sure you have some opinions, and I'm interested to explore those. Yeah, so I think... We're making progress. I think back to when you and I first met, which is probably over ten, over ten years ago now, maybe. Um, and you look at 
the landscape of well-being in organisations. And um, I guess there is such huge variety in organisations. In some organisations, things have moved on massively in the last decade. In others, it hasn't. Um, so we don't really have kind of consistency um, across um, the activities that organisations are doing. There's also been a huge proliferation of products and services and consultants like me <laughs> entering the market. There's, but there's there's a lot of people out there talking about well-being, and I am sure that for organisations that can be quite confusing. You're being sold all sorts of different things and promised that everything's going to make a difference. How do you know what's evidence-based and how do you know what is actually um, appropriate for the culture um, of your organisation? Because every organisation is different. So when people talk about best practice and benchmarking and all these you know, buzzwords, actually it's useful to know what other companies are doing but and absolutely look at the evidence-based, but understanding what is applicable to your organisation, it might be slightly different to another organisation, but first of all, it must start with risk management. And I think that is the challenge with wellbeing at the moment, coming back to your question. There's lots of great stuff at the kind of tertiary kind of intervention end, but what are we doing in terms of prevention? There's not enough happening um, at that end of the scale yet. Um, and, and that's really what's needed because it's all very well doing resilience training and, um, you know, training up people to have well-being conversations. And that's fantastic. And, I you know, I, I support that kind of work. But we need to be preventing the harm in the first place. Oh, you should have been a health and safety inspector, Judith. <laughs> I mean, I would, yeah, that. I would have loved to. I would have loved to have gone on site with you. I, some... That's one of the things I miss. Actually, I was, yeah, you know, I was um, director of health and wellbeing at Mace, so a big construction company, yeah. um, for a number of years, and I absolutely loved the site visit. I still actually have my safety boots, so if anyone wants to invite me on a site visit, I'm still kitted out. So the hard hat, high vis, but it was just really nice to get out, sort of boots on the ground and meet yeah. people, um, you know, at the hard face of, of um, the work and really understand um, the realities of, of, of working life. Because it's a bit different being in an office than it is uh, out on a construction site, isn't it? Oh, no, definitely. And, and there is respect for going onto the sites and, you know, and, and having conversations and, uh, you know, um, as you know, I'm uh, mates of mine's mental health advisor and, yeah. you know, so still have, uh, have opportunities to engage uh, uh, on the sites and that. Uh, and I, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it, and we need to, don't we? I mean, the, the suicide yeah. rates uh, and mental health illness is uh, extremely high in the construction sector. And, I guess that's one of the, the our missions really is to bring that down and um and, and I know um your your work at Mace it, it was you know really really looking for the evidence base was really important and, and how do you find actually um, um because obviously you're going into organizations um and you're now consulting and you're uh, and you're advising how many people are interested in the evidence base 
Um, I suppose when you work as a well-being consultant, to some extent, extent your clients are self-selecting in that because I I go on about the evidence based a lot on LinkedIn and that's something that I've always talked about. The people that are coming to me that I'm working with are interested in the evidence base. Um, and that's, yeah, really promising. So maybe I'm in kind of a happy little well-being bubble to some extent in that the people that I'm, I'm working with are interested in it. But what they're also interested in is how do you apply that? Um, so how do you take that evidence and make it practical because you know there's obviously a significant amount of research in this area there are some phenomenal academics looking at all sorts of um, areas of well-being at work and uh, health at work and so many hundreds of different factors or drivers of well-being like how do you bring all of that evidence base together and then make it practical and apply it to the organisation. And that's the challenge because the academics, uh, you know, they want randomised control trials and, you know, um, uh, control groups and um, all sorts of other um, methodology, which is absolutely fair enough. But trying to get that to happen in an organisation is not always easy. Um, So it's kind of that balance and I, I really like all of the work that comes out of the what work center for well-being um mm. as they do you know they are pulling together the evidence base f- for well-being not just within the workplace but community well-being all of the office of national statistics measures um and they put out some really good advice um to well organizations community groups etc etc so there are sources of information there for people or for organisations to use. Um, and it's a case of, well, trying to get the budget to to be able to put these things in place. But I think the more there can be that kind of um, partnership between academics and the practitioners, the better. Um, and that, I mean, that's one of the reasons why I still like get involved with even though I finished my PhD back in 2018 I think it was um I do occasional lectures at King's College um and you know each year I've tutored a student um helping them through their master's course just because I like well I still like to be involved in the academic side of things and when I was at MACE we got all sorts of different universities did research projects on different elements of our wellbeing program to give it that kind of external scrutiny. Um, and yeah, the more that companies can do that, the better, because you're furthering the evidence base, um, which is great for the research. And it means that hopefully you're getting something in your organisation that is going to work. Yeah, it's that external validity, isn't it, really? That, 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 yep. that sense of that you're going in the right direction. Um, I want to pick up on something you said. There are that many hundreds of things that you can do in well-being. I was, you know, surprised. I just thought it was down to apples and pears and and and, and other elements. I mean, <laughs> let, let, sorry, I mean, I'm being I'm, maybe I'm being facetious here. You love a fruit pass. Um, 
Uh, no fruit baskets. I'm, I'm sorry, I forgot the fruit basket. Yeah, yeah. Um, one of the things, Judas, and, and we've spoken about previously in the podcast, is the world of well-being uh, has changed, um, become over, uh, almost, it's become a conglomerate, has it not, of possibilities of different people putting, you know, different offers, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, during lockdown and 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 since lockdown, um, do you think we'll get to a place where we'll level out some of the the what is essentially non evidence based um, approaches, or do you think actually we just got to kind of work within it? I, I my personal preference is not to work. I'd rather I want evidence based in, in the decisions that I'm making, but there is so many things out there which really don't have an evidence base, but they're out there. So I'm just be interested to know how how you manage that and how and, and then be, and then I'll go on to another question, just giving you the heads up on the World Health Organization's viewpoint on this. So I think I mean that's a difficult question. I like to well, I don't like to think that people will go out of business. That's an awful thing to say. I don't like to think that. What I like to think is that all of those well-being companies that are operating in the market will recognise that they need an evidence base and start to build it up to give their products and services that they've developed the the oomph or the you know the academic credentials that it works. I think inevitably, um, with the kind of economic uncertainty and all the kind of challenges, global challenges at the moment, some of these you know, products and services will drop out of the market. That is, I guess, natural progression, unfortunately, for many small businesses that start up. It's awful, but it's the reality. I don't know, though, because the proliferation of social media and of the way we consume things, so, you know, the the way that sort of search engines and shopping websites and social media everything set up is for, uh, like instant information and youtube instant information and a lot of that stuff doesn't necessarily have backing behind it so for the well the well-being market to some extent mirrors um some of the challenges that other parts of society are experiencing with misinformation or not necessarily misinformation but just not having um robust information informing um the products there so i i hope that the market will become steadier and will be um more evidence-based but the reality is who knows yeah yeah, exactly. Um, and it, but it's interesting, isn't it, that the World Health Organization has um, has chosen to use the word prevention, promote, protect, and support. Yeah. Um, and in that context, changing the narrative around primary, secondary, and tertiary, which is what they're, they're effectively uh, describing there. Um I think it sits easier with organisations to understand what we, we want to prevent. Mm. Um, what is interesting, though, is that central to that is good health and well-being, which actually creates a protective barrier, doesn't it? So for those of us who worked on construction sites, we're trying to protect the worker from from 
the inherent risk in, in, in the job. Yeah. Um, which is, uh, I and mean, what do you think about it? I'm, you know, do you find it that organisations are taking it, find it easier to understand now what we're trying to do on this very yeah. technical term of private, secondary and tertiary? I think so. It's, it's funny you asked that question, actually. I just wrote um, my latest Substack blog, um, which is set for like release so on the 10th of October on yeah, all, so about, all about the World Health Organization and um, their approach to mental health and the prevent, promote, exact, uh, all of that. So, yeah, that's uh, well-timed, Peter. Um, so I absolutely agree with it. I think, and in fact, back when I was at Royal Mail, that's the model we were we were talking about and I've always said when like when when my grandma when she was alive she had no idea what my job was just couldn't I mean she was excited when I worked at the Royal Mail because she knew that you know what they did they delivered the post um and um I always used to describe my job is about managing health risks and creating well-being opportunities and I think that kind of is what it's all about isn't it and I think that the you know, primary, secondary, tertiary, or the rebranding of that um, totally speaks to that, doesn't it? Because it is about, it's all very well having the resilience training and as you just mentioned, the fruit and all those kind of good stuff out there. But if you are killing someone slowly through exposure to silica dust or asbestos, or you are breaking their back through... Um, you know, poor manual handling practices or whatever else it might be, or you're being exposed to chemicals, their hands are being destroyed or um, they've got vibration-related injuries um, or they're being exposed to bullying in the workplace or risk of physical harm or stress or all of these risks. A lot of these, in some of the wellbeing strategies I've seen um, through my career, not just working as a consultant, a lot of these aren't even mentioned because they're separate. And I think one of the good things at the moment, so one of the positive things is that different specialisms are starting to work closer together because health and safety often, you know, that's where the traditional health risks have sat. And yes, they have responsibility around psychosocial risks, although that was perhaps poorly understood and executed before. But those specialisms are now working more with the HR specialisms and the kind of organisational development and the um, you know, personal development and all of these kind of areas that are all critical for well-being. So when these departments or these specialisms work together, you have a much more balanced approach to, to managing well-being. And I think that enables you to better meet the World Health Organization's recommendations um, because well-being is complex and that's I think some of the th one of the things that organizations struggle with because it's it's subjective each one of us will have a different definition of well-being um, and that makes it a difficult to kind of grasp exactly what it is and how to address it but by having a toolkit of lots of different levers that you can adjust um, by understanding the risks in the organisation and the opportunities, um, you can make more of a difference. So, yeah, absolutely. I really like the work that the World Health Organisation has done um, recently and, and bringing together that global element as well. So for global businesses, often 
you know, it's so easy to to look at things with a UK angle, a UK outlet, but actually or outlook. But um, you know, there are challenges, similar challenges across the world, but there are also different challenges depending on the cultures that people are working in, and we need to address those in our wellbeing strategies as well. That was a really long answer. Yeah, no. <laughs> Sorry, I know, but you know, I can talk. It was a very. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it was a very long question. Um, just for, uh, for our listeners um, of a certain uh, who don't know what Substack is, do you want to briefly explain? Oh, yeah. Substack so, so Substack, I'm so down with the kids nowadays. Uh, Substack is right. a, um, uh, a blogging platform. It's used by a lot of writers, actually, but it's, uh, it's basically a newsletter that I, I send out every fortnight. Um, on there and there's some really great other people that you can follow on there's lots of great accounts hi listeners jason here we hope you're enjoying this latest podcast episode now if you're like joelle alicia and myself and enjoy learning from the best then the flourish dx academy is for you the academy includes free e-learning courses on the iso 45003 standard for psychological health and safety at work and associated topics such as how to conduct a psychosocial risk assessment and how to create the business case for psych health and safety. All courses feature high-quality videos, downloadable resources, multi-choice questions, and a downloadable training certificate on completion. Take your learning to the next level with all Flourish DX Academy courses included within the Flourish DX mobile app. Select podcast episodes from the Psych Health and Safety podcast and sister podcasts from Canada and the USA are also included. Get started with Flourish DX for free at www.flourishdx.com forward slash get hyphen started. That's www.flourishdx.com forward slash get hyphen started. Now back to this episode. So that, I mean, that's another way of our message getting out, isn't it? It's using social media to talk about these issues because so, so these are the kind of people we'll go to Substack um, or, or or Reddit or any range of other media platforms to find out. So I'm, um, you know, I think that I think that's really, really, really good, um, and you know, and something that cool. Um, let's talk a little bit about psych health and safety, but actually, we probably have been talking about it. But um, how, in in terms of you see the marketplace in the UK, you know, and its its receptiveness to psychological health and safety. I think it absolutely is starting to um, come into organisations. ISO 45003 has had a positive impact in that respect because, you know, those organisations that enjoy a BSI standard and like the, that, um, you know, the process, those that have gone through ISO 45001 um, are obviously having conversations about like the, the three Um uh, but I guess it's it's been talked about in different languages. I think there's probably still some confusion as to what it means in in certain organisations, um, uh, and that's maybe down to us all as professionals to kind of work on the marketing of it to make sure that people understand exactly what it means. You know, I've seen confusion between psych health and safety and psychological safety in these kind of terms because um, they're quite close to each other. So it, so I think absolutely more organisations are interested in it. Health and safety, definitely. Um, I think, um, you know, it's been positive. The changes in Australia have obviously had a ripple effect 
um, into the consciousness, I suppose, of um, companies or, or I, said, I should say not companies, but the health and safety leads within those companies in this country, how they're getting that conversation across within organisations, I don't know. I mean, we were talking about psychological health and safety in Royal Mail when I worked there, um, was it a decade ago? Um, so, um, so many companies have been talking about this for years, um, but it doesn't necessarily ma- mean that they've quite got to grips with it yet. But um, I think I answered your question there just about. <laughs> you, you, you did, yeah. And I think that that is part of the problem, isn't it? It's the... Um... When something becomes a proliferation, such as well-being, other areas can be, uh, you know, can be sort of like avoided, or, or people, people, you know, sort of concentrate on that. I mean, you know, recently ESG and now um, diversity include, uh, inclusion have all become part of the landscape. Yeah. Um, no, it, it's interesting to see um, psychological health and safety can fit under any any of those categories, can it not? You know, in terms of you know getting the environment right, and so you get sustainable workforces, um, in good governance is risk assessment. You know, and mm. and actually in workplaces we need to you know we need to look at the how work is, the way work's done and and, and the distribution of that work. So um, so yeah, it, it, it's been a um, it's an interesting journey, isn't it, to watch? I think, and that's what we've been doing over the last ten years. I mean. I remember, you know, you going for the Royal Mail job, job, and at the time, you know, a well-being lead in a in a multinational company um, was rare, um, and you very much came at the angle with the mental health. And I think, uh, um, you know, we're now, but now we have mental health officers, mm. we have, you know, chief well-being officers, chief well-being people officers, um, uh, and uh, and I think. Uh, if you if we, when we sat down together at Nottingham ten years ago, um, and had a beer, as as rarely done, and and it said what would it look like in ten years, Judith? We've gone. I don't quite think the landscape would be where, where we are now, and in part I'm thankful for that. But it also, with progress comes problems sometimes, doesn't it? Um, and I, and I think uh, you know that's been something that you, you've really tried to address. I mean, you, your focus. It is about bringing out the best in businesses, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, because the majority of businesses and people working in businesses want the best for people. I know we can be cynical and say, oh, you know, horrible bosses and all of that. But actually, most people are good, kind people. Um, And some organisations, if they just need a little bit of a guiding hand to help them understand how to support people better and understanding that support doesn't necessarily just mean putting in place an employee assistance program which obviously there are fantastic ones out there but understanding that support might mean looking at the design and organization of work um looking at the work environment it might be that the best thing you could possibly do to improve well-being um, in that office, for example, might be to fix the toilets. <laughs> you know, it's it's kind of looking broadly at, um, oh, you know, at all the different drivers of well-being, and that's what 
I try to do when I'm working with organisations is explore all the different areas. And, and often the, the, the kind of the person that I'm working with in the organisation, they may not have responsibility for all the areas that we discuss, but my, the recommendations that I make will cover multiple areas within, within a business. So, so to give them that broad perspective that well-being really sits across everything as you said you know inclusion and diversity absolutely critical it's it's aligned with with well-being the two go hand in hand same with sustainability um and the uh, ESG um side of things absolutely again these are areas that should be together and then all the people manage it so um, and health and safety so the more that these areas can work together the better so that one thing I would encourage all companies to do is have a health governance board or committee or whatever you want to call it and bring together each of those departments, those specialisms, bring your well-being suppliers into it and work together collectively to look at the kind of the broad drivers of well-being um, and kind of collectively address them and there's also the individual responsibility as well, as we all have, you know, individual responsibility to manage our our health and well-being. So it's that balance between managing those risks and creating well-being opportunities. Yeah. Um, and also, I mean, Judith, you've had a, a, an interesting journey, haven't you, over the last few years and um, and and some incredible insights into the uh, the experiences of people who, uh, with COVID and long COVID. To what degree do you think that's influenced your um, your vigour and enthusiasm for health and wellbeing? Because um, in the real reality of what happens when, uh, when, when we're faced with a condition uh, and what that means to, to that, so. Well, I mean, without a doubt, so I had, I caught, COVID in March 2020 and I was ill for three and a half years really you know I I was off sick off work sick for two years so you know to have been fairly fit and healthy beforehand to have always been really busy maybe a slight workaholic um uh I my entire life changed and it has changed since really like it's one of those you know, many people go through these sort of life shocks and that was a life shock for me, definitely. So it has renewed my vigour for health and wellbeing, but perhaps in a more balanced way for my own wellbeing this time. So, yeah, it had. I think what it made me reflect on is, you know, when you're in a senior role within an organisation and certainly really large organisations, you you have to, you know, if you're the only person with the word well-being in your job title, you have to look at the population. So you have to look at aggregates and numbers of people. And you don't always forget individuals because very often you have individuals from all over the organisation phoning you up with their concerns and with challenges that they've got. So, you know, it's an intense kind of role to have but I think for me it it was at an individual level I realised my goodness all these people who have got ME, chronic fatigue, um, 
these kind of conditions that remit and relapse and 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 sort of undulate and you know that is millions of people we organizations are perhaps or many organizations perhaps not supporting them as well as they could be and it's it's difficult but so i mean i was totally incapacitated for two years and obviously had also i mean i don't you know i talked about it a lot people want to see my linkedin videos have a look but i now i kind of want to move past talking about the you know what happened to me for my own kind of well-being now but um it was definitely a wake-up call as to the reality if you're off sick for that long you you have to think about your safety nets like does your contract i was very very lucky in my employer i am so thankful for for them because i had private medical insurance i had income protection insurance i had that safety net i also had you know privilege you know acknowledge my privilege like you know a family that could look after me and all these kind of things i was fit and healthy before um so i probably had the opportunity for better health outcomes than perhaps some others and that is you know that's a privilege that's luck to some extent but yeah it was it was a huge huge shock um uh, but yeah for me now i want to really help organizations look at all of those risks that sit by and some of those risks now is like let's look at your sickness absence policy let's look at the insurances because i know for goodness sake the the cost of private medical insurance is you know soaring the premiums at the moment but maybe that's an investment worth making if you look at the costs of people leaving your organization and your absence rates you know look at it across the the whole and see what's possible and instead of giving maybe your private medical insurance to the you know the top guys and gals in the organization um look at giving it to the people that perhaps need it who have been bitten the most by the cost of living crisis um you know i think there's this huge systematic challenges um in terms of healthcare at the moment that we face and organizations have a you know real role that they can play play in that and there are many people who still got long covid i'm very lucky that i have pretty much um recovered but there are many people who still are sick with it um and you know there's the sort of return to work processes vocational rehabilitation all sorts of other areas that organizations can explore to better support their people yeah and i mean i when we first met um, i remember it was in uh, the excel um, yes, and was, yeah. with, with that with that enthusiasm you know sort of thing um and actually you know the fact is that you you, you know, we've we've learned from those experiences and you've learned from those experiences and it influences what you do now and i think that's a um you know and your honesty and uh, and your, your sort of commitment to to telling that story was was and it still remains very important um, before we finish, we normally finish with one humdinger of one thing you want to tell the, the listeners of what um, what you think is a, should be a priority in psych health and safety and in well-being. Um, you probably said. I probably said. I mean, manage risk. Like I know it's it's not the, it's not like the the kind of most beautiful strap line for organizations but actually if you can get the basics right 
then that's a great starting point um, to better supporting people. And be kind. I mean, again, maybe like just just remember that um, you don't always know what's going on behind someone's facade. So just be kind. And that's not necessarily about being like soft. It's about being kind. <laughs> oh, I, I love that. Being kind. That's all I mean, you know, compassion and empathy in the workplace and kindness. Basic human traits that exactly. that, that should exist it that should exist in the workplace. Well, that's 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 been ex- excellent, and thank you for taking this time. So, for our listeners, um, please do uh, listen on your various different streaming uh, platforms, and uh, we look forward to uh, hearing from you both. We're we're both active on LinkedIn, are we not, Judith? So, we are. Um, we do enjoy uh, a bit of LinkedIn. Judith Grant and, and Peter Kelly. Yeah. Uh, thank you for coming on to this podcast. Thank you, My and pleasure. we look forward to. Uh, speaking again at another conference. I'm sure we will. (laughs) You've been listening to the Psych Health and Safety Podcast. To stay up to date with the latest on psychological injury prevention, follow Flourish DX on LinkedIn and subscribe to the Psych Health and Safety Podcast at www.psychhealthandsafety.com.